Um, so for today, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. If you mind turning there with me. So once again, that's 1 Corinthians 15, and it's verses 1 through 11. So of the many technological advances of recent decades, one of the most used devices is what's called GPS. We've all seen these devices. They're now in cars, they're in your watches, they're in your cell phones. And what the big deal is, is you don't have to carry around a map anymore and fumble through it as you're trying to drive or get somewhere. You can simply punch in where you want to go in this device and be guided there turn by turn, point by point, with no effort of your own. So this is a great advancement, and we all love these and benefit from the technology. However, there are some pitfalls here. Uh, so what we've seen is that researchers at the University of Texas have developed a GPS spoofing device, is what they call it. So what this device does is it emits false GPS signals that eventually take over the actual GPS and can reroute or redirect the device. Now, for us in our cars, or us that are just jogging, this is not a big deal because obviously we're in charge of where we're going. But for other vehicles such as yachts or larger boats or unmanned aerial vehicles, the GPS is essential to actually get the vehicle to where it needs to go. So by this very, very small outside influence, what we see is that the, if the direction is changed by only a single degree over the course of the entire journey, the vehicle could end off miles off course. And you would not know until you got there, obviously, because the sea and the sky is just blue all around, so you don't really know what's happening. There are no mile markers. There are no highway signs. So something that seems small and unnoticeable could potentially lead to a serious accident or maybe even being lost. And so this isn't a concern for us, but there is a lesson to be learned here. Subtle outside influences can cause us to deviate from our course if we are not careful. And so within our culture, there are ideas and worldviews that we are all confronted with on a daily basis. Many of these ideas are contrary to the gospel message. And if they are left unchecked, they'll work their way into our minds and cause us to question the truthfulness of God's word. This small seed of doubt can eventually cause us to reject the gospel and deviate from the truth. Like the Corinthians and like the vehicles that were spoofed, we can be led astray and in the wrong direction if we let these influences overtake us. So in our age of technology and innovation, many seek to innovate the gospel message as well. They claim that the miracles of the Bible can't be believed to be true. To them, it's all fantasy. Some feel as if these occurrences can be spiritualized to the point where they make some kind of theological point where we can't believe they actually happen. Some that call themselves Christians find it perfectly acceptable to build their own gospels, taking the things they like and leaving the parts that are difficult for them to understand or that seem too controversial they don't want to deal with. So they effectively form their own gospel message and not the one that is taught by the scriptures. So I don't know about you, but I see this all the time in my own life, especially in one area is evangelism. When I'm sharing the gospel with people, I talk about God being the creator of all. Most people are okay with that. They can, they can, they can see that happening. I talk about the reality of human sinfulness. 
Most people look at the world around them and they can say, yeah, something's wrong with the world. Then we get to Christ dying for sin. They like that part. They want to get signed up for that because no one wants to hear their own sin. But then I get to the resurrection of the Christ, and it just seems too controversial. It seems too much for them to bear. Everything they have learned and everything they've been taught by the culture tells them that this truth should be rejected. And so this is not only for those who are outside the church. Some Christians really don't understand the resurrection so well either. They have a quite shallow view of this doctrine. They affirm it. It's in their doctrinal statement. They'll check it off on a survey. However, they don't really understand the practical value for their daily lives. And if we are all honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we are all influenced by external sources to some degree. And if these are left unchecked, we can doubt God's truth. To truly believe the gospel, we must fully believe the gospel. And so from the text today, what we'll see is that we must trust in the resurrection because it is the trustworthy foundation of the gospel. So we must trust in the resurrection because it is the trustworthy foundation of the gospel. So our text again is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. So let's read that together. And it reads, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul planted the Corinthian church during his second missionary journey. After presenting them with the gospel message and teaching them how to live a Christian life, he continued on to Ephesus. While in Ephesus, he got disturbing news about the Corinthian congregation. They had deviated from the gospel message which he taught them. Paul writes to the Corinthians to address a number of issues within the church. There were divisions over preachers. There were issues of sexual immorality, misunderstandings of marriage, and umbilical worship practices, among other things occurring in the congregation. While living in a pagan city such as Corinth, outside views eventually crept into the church and caused the Corinthians to stumble in many of these uh, life events. They had compromised on certain points to make the gospel more compatible with their, with their outside culture. They struggled to resolve the culture, the theology of Scripture, and true spirituality. So as with most of Paul's books, he builds an argument for proper Christian practice from proper theology. In this section, he seeks to guide the Corinthians back to the truth of the resurrection. In verse 12, we'll see that there were some in the congregation that denied the resurrection was a real thing. And so Paul now has to bring them back to the truth of Scripture to help them understand the importance of the resurrection and to show that it is, in fact, trustworthy. 
So Paul begins by establishing this. Um, he said the resurrection should be trusted because the Corinthians can see that their salvation shows evidence of that, the witness of the gospel, and also the transformative power of the gospel. So the first thing that we'll see in the text is that the church testifies of the resurrection. So the church testifies of the resurrection. So the first evidence of the resurrection's truthfulness Paul provides is the Corinthians themselves. He essentially asked them to look in the mirror and to examine their current state. In verse 1, Paul refers to the Corinthians as brothers. This seems insignificant to us because some of us have been in church for a while, and we know brothers and sisters can be regular church lingo. If we step back to the time this letter was written, him calling the Corinthians brothers is actually quite significant. For the first part, we see that by calling them brothers, he admits that the Corinthian congregation are brothers and sisters with one another. But secondly, it shows that Paul is a partaker of that brotherhood as well. Now, if we go back, we know that Corinth is a city in Greece made up of mostly Greeks and Gentiles. But Paul himself is a Jew. He's of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. So we have to ask ourselves, how was Paul a brother with the Corinthian congregation? So Paul's introduction lets us know how they became so intimately acquainted. In fact, this is what Paul seeks to remind them of, not only the message of the gospel, but their relationship to the message. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. We see that Paul preached the gospel to them. He emphasizes this with the phrase, the gospel I preached to you. This phrase not only shows that Paul was the one that initially preached the gospel to them, but it also shows the content of the message. The gospel I preached to you has specific content. We'll see further down in verses 3 and 4 that this specific content that Paul preached was Christ's death for sin, his burial, and his resurrection. This is what Paul referred to when he says the gospel I preached to you. It was this gospel that led to their salvation, and it was this gospel that led to the formation of the church. If one deviates from any points of this gospel or alters them in any way, they had created a new gospel, one that is effectively different from Paul's gospel presentation. Elsewhere, Paul writes to the Galatians, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. These same words are true to the Corinthians and to us today. Replacing Paul's content is deviating from the gospel message. To understand this, we must understand the basis for Paul's content. Paul always opens his letter to the Corinthians by saying, he was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus in chapter 1. Later in chapter 9, Paul alludes to the fact that he was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ and that the Corinthian congregation are the seal of his apostleship in the Lord. The Corinthians are his workmanship in the Lord as well. Elsewhere, he wrote that the gospel that he preached was not man's gospel, for he did not receive it from any man, nor was he taught it, but received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul was given authority to preach the message. And the message that Paul is preaching is not his own, but actually the message of Christ himself. So to reject Paul's message is to reject Christ's testimony of himself. 
So Paul is not the inventor, but only one that delivers the message that he received through preaching. And so preaching in this text is also seen as of importance, and is also shown of importance with this phrase, the gospel I preach to you. Uh, we see that it pleased God that the message was transmitted through preaching. The ways of the world at this time were to seek and to verify truth by signs and by wisdom, but God chose that his truth be conveyed through preaching of the word that many viewed as foolish. It is likely this is the very reason the Corinthians sought to change the message, because it was too foolish for some of them. In the providence and wisdom of God, he chose to reveal his truths by preaching to his people. And so we see in verses 1 and 2 that it's not only the content of Paul's gospel, the gospel I preach to you that leads to their salvation, but also their response as well. It does not come from only knowing the right content, but having faith in the message. Verses 1 and 2 comment on the Corinthians' response to the message. They receive, stand, and are being saved by the message. They responded to the message not only by affirming its truth, but placing their faith in it with their actions. They are said to stand in the gospel. This term refers to a devotion or resoluteness or even an abiding. In fact, Paul uses the term in Romans 11 to contrast those who were unbelieving to those who were true believers and stood fast in the faith. In contrast to the preaching which was done by Paul and the receiving and standing which the believers participated in, the saving is done by an outside source. God alone brings salvation to his people. The progression presented in the text touches on all tenses of salvation. Most times we think of salvation as a present reality based on a past event being the work of Christ. But in Scripture, salvation occurs in three tenses, past, present, and future. And we see all three in this text. We've been saved by the work of Christ. We are being saved by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And we will be saved once we are glorified with the Father. They received the message. This focuses on the past when they heard the truth and initially believed. They stand in the message, showing that in the present they are subject to it day by day. And lastly, they are being saved by the message. The salvation begins in the present but carries on into the future. All aspects of salvation are secured by the resurrection of Christ. Romans 4.25 says that Christ died for our sins, but he was raised for our justification. So our right standing before God is dependent upon the resurrection because we are justified through that. The coming of the Holy Spirit was based on the resurrection. It's the Spirit that sanctifies us and saves us in the present tense. And of course, the final state of glorification will involve the resurrection of all believers. So the resurrection is obviously needed for that too. So Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. It is clear from Scripture that without the resurrection, there is no salvation. Paul modifies these comments later on in the verse with a conditional clause, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The term hold fast is one of great imagery. We've all seen the movies where there's somebody falling off a cliff or a building, and some hero disappears out of nowhere, and they push their hand out over the edge and just holds them there for about five minutes until they have the strength to pull them up. And this is the imagery that Paul is talking about when he says hold fast to the gospel. The person is holding on for their dear life. They know that if they let go, they will surely die. And they hold with the strength and the power and the resoluteness they did not know they even had. They're clinging on for their very lives. It's in this fashion that Paul calls them to hold fast to the gospel message. And so we see from this that the gospel, that faith in the gospel is not a one-time event, but a lifetime pursuit. We must hold fast to the message. 
Holding fast is an act of faith. It is not simply enough to understand the facts and agree to them. In fact, James says that even the demons understand that God is one. The demons have the correct facts, but they are not moved by this knowledge. They still rebel against God. This type of belief, this intellectual assent, is not truly believing in the gospel. And it basically, Paul says, is vain belief. So it says, unless you believe in vain, to describe this kind of belief. But there are two ways to lead to, lead to vain belief presented in the text. The first way to lead to vain belief is to not truly believe in the gospel message presented by Paul. And the second way is to distort the content of the message that Paul preached. Both of these ways will lead to vain belief. And in fact, the two go hand in hand because no one that has truly believed in the gospel message will seek to change it in any way. It's only those that had a shallow belief to begin with that want to distort the message to their own liking to make it simpler for themselves. Paul's statement about vain belief is meant to be a warning and a call of self-examination for all within the congregation. All those who rejected the resurrection believed in vain. They are not truly being saved, and they don't stand in the truth, and therefore they don't have salvation. From the text, it is clear that the brotherhood of Paul and the Corinthians is rooted in the salvation that comes from faith in the gospel that Paul preached, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If one of these truths is taken away, there can be no salvation and their belief would have been in vain. A Christ that did not die for sin cannot save anyone, but equally so, a Christ that was not raised can also not save anyone. It's not the death that produces the salvation, but the resurrection. Before the resurrection, the disciples were at a standstill. When commenting to what happened to Jesus to a traveler on the road to Emmaus, they said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, past tense. As far as they were concerned, their hope had died. But when they believed that Christ had raised from the dead, things began to change. The Jesus they thought was dead returned in power. The church was formed. The resurrection is the power of the gospel. It is the resurrection that secures salvation. For this, for this reason, the Corinthians could look to themselves as the evidence of the resurrection. The Corinthian church, like all churches, testify of the resurrection of Christ. So in displaying the church as the evidence of the resurrection, Paul is calling all Christians to trust in the resurrection. First of all, to follow the example of Paul, we must put ourselves in a position to remind others of the gospel message. This includes both believers and non-believers. By proclaiming the gospel to others, we strengthen and reinforce our own faith. We also build up our brothers and sisters and strengthen their faith and help them to return to the gospel if they have, in fact, deviated. For those who not be do not believe, they must come to trust in Christ when we do this. It's our responsibility to engage them with the message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And because the church is the product and the evidence of the resurrection, it follows that all believers should partake in Christian community. By doing this, we distinguish ourselves as those that hold to the gospel. We didn't serve the testimony for all to the truthfulness of God's message. In fact, in Ephesians, we see that the manifold wisdom of God is revealed to the entire universe through the church. The church then points others to the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. We see this in the book of Acts as well, people coming to be convinced of the message of Christ based on the life of the church. Because of the truthfulness of the message, we must hold fast to it. That's what Paul wants us to do. We cannot deviate in any way. To do this, we first have to know the message of the gospel to hold fast to it. So we need to study our scriptures. We need to sit under the preaching of the word. We must hold fast. And so we are expected to live by faith, 
trusting in the gospel day by day. And lastly, we must understand that we are saved by the power of God. As one pastor put it, those who are held fast, hold fast. It is God that gives us the grace, God that gives us the strength, and God that gives us the power to hold to his word. This goes not only for us, but those we are trying to reach. We must fully trust in God's work and his power. So after showing how salvation and the existence of the church is dependent on the content of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Paul rightly proceeds to the content of the message. He has already made it clear that it is his gospel that is the true gospel. He now elaborates on his confidence in the content. In verses 3 through 8, we see that witnesses testify of the resurrection. Witnesses testify of the resurrection. So before looking at the witnesses, Paul gives us the content of the message and gives us a little prequel to the information. He says that that the, um, the importance and origin of the message are of first importance. He delivered the message as he received it. He is not the source of the message, but simply a messenger, one carrying the message of another. He carries the word of God to men. He testifies of what he has seen and is under compulsion to proclaim. In relation to all topics concerning the gospel faith, it says that the gospel is of first importance. Without the proper content, one cannot even claim to be a Christian. We have to understand that what separates Christians from other religions and other cults is what we say about the work and person of Jesus Christ. So Paul says this gospel message is of first importance. He then elaborates on what this message actually is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So notice here that the death of Christ and this message is coupled with the purpose for our sins. A gospel that overlooks this fact is no gospel at all. At the time this letter was written, many people would agree that there was, in fact, a man named Jesus that died. It was a known fact at the time. But the gospel, to believe the gospel, we must hold to a purposeful death of Christ, death for our sins. It's for this reason that when John the Baptist saw him initially, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's not enough to say that Christ died. We must say that his death was a substitute for us. He died for sinners to transfer his righteousness and his purity to them through faith. The next gospel event that we see was the burial of Christ. The burial validates that Jesus died a physical death within a physical body. Although he was fully man, he was fully God as well. He died in humanity and was therefore buried. And lastly, Paul says that Christ was raised on the third day. This term raised refers to the resurrection of Christ. The language here points to a past event with present implications. Christ was raised and Christ is raised presently. The gospel message is not complete without the resurrection of Christ. By including the resurrection in this condensed form of the gospel message Paul presents in this chapter, he shows it's an essential part of the gospel that is not debatable and cannot be changed for those who would call themselves Christians. In the resurrection, Christ is acted upon by God the Father. The Father's resurrection of Christ shows that the work of Christ was accepted by God. If we think about Jesus' ministry on the earth, he claims to be sent by the Father, empowered by the Father, and one with the Father. So the resurrection then invalidates that these claims are in fact true. It validates the testimony of Christ. Secondly, the resurrection gives hope to believers of their own resurrection. Jesus promises eternal life to all those who believe in his name. The resurrection shows by what way we will actually receive that eternal life. 
So Christ is the first of a, of a new humanity that's created through the resurrection. And so after that introduction and after elaborating on what the content actually is, Paul moves into the witnesses here. And so there are two witnesses that Paul puts in front of us, both God and men, God and men. So first we'll look at the first witness, which is God. So in describing the death and resurrection of Christ, Paul used the phrase, in accordance with the scriptures. So not only is Paul saying that the fact that the sacrificial death and resurrection of Christ were prophesied hundreds of years ago in the text of the Old Testament, but he's also pointing to the fact that the death and resurrection of Christ were according to the plan of God, in accordance with the scripture. But not only that, by saying in accordance with the scriptures, Paul is effectively saying that God testifies of the death and resurrection of Christ. The testimony of Scripture is the testimony of God himself. It's for this reason the New Testament writers rightly use the phrase God says and Scripture says interchangeably. They are, in fact, the same. So many in Scriptures in the Old Testament speak to the resurrection of Christ in addition to those in the New Testament. In this case, Isaiah 53 comes to mind for Paul. The passage is filled with language of substitutionary death. In verse 4, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 8, He was cut off off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And verse 12, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. This passage clearly points to one who would die for the sins of the people. The gospel shows that Jesus died on the cross and that he was a sacrificial death, was a part of God's redemptive plan. God testifies of Christ's sacrificial death. The resurrection is also said to be in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus not only supported the resurrection, but identified as the resurrection and the life. He predicted on several occasions that he would, in fact, be raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ was an essential part of the preaching of the early church. In fact, we have seen this the last few weeks going through the book of Acts. In Acts 2, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts chapter 3, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. When sharing the gospel, both Paul and Peter used Psalm 16 to explain the resurrection of the Christ. In the psalm, David says that God will not abandon my soul in Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In Acts, Peter expounds on this and says that David is not speaking of himself in this text because David is, in fact, in the grave and he's never got up from the grave. David is functioning as a prophet here, and as a prophet, he testifies that Christ would come and that Christ would be raised from the dead because Christ is the Holy One of God, therefore he could not see corruption. So the text not only states that Christ was raised in the dead in accordance to the scriptures, but also includes a time frame for that resurrection on the third day. So Jesus claimed that he would raise up the temple of his body in three days after it was destroyed. These claims are well known. This is part of the reason the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate to ensure the tomb was secured. And yielding to the scriptures as a testimony of Christ, God himself has validated the claims. We must trust in the truth of God by receiving the testimony of his son. God testifies of the resurrection. After calling God to the stand as a witness, Paul then moves to men to show their influence and their witness of the resurrection. 
The next witness, he says in verses 5 through 8, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So the appearance of Christ after his resurrection validate the claim of the resurrection, obviously. And so Paul gives us hundreds of witnesses in this case. There are 500 men at once. There are all the apostles. There's Paul himself. There's James. And so many have seen the Christ and testify of it. These appearances were not random encounters, but they were essential to the formation of the church. Many of us can recall in the gospel message that Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's upon this foundation the church is built. However, following Christ's crucifixion, disciples were without hope. They didn't understand how the death of Jesus worked into the redemptive plan. They thought that he was dead and therefore not the Messiah. One of the foundational purposes of the resurrection and the witnesses here was to establish that Jesus was in fact alive and therefore the Christ. So many, so many people that saw him were also spent time with Jesus. He let the disciples touch him. He ate with the disciples. He removed all doubt in their mind that he was, in fact, resurrected because he understood how important this truth was to his Messiahship and to the church. And so Paul in here alludes to the fact that there are more than 500 witnesses that are still alive that could testify to the resurrection of Christ. If we understand the Old Testament, if we understand the Levitical law, you need, a couple, you need at least two witnesses to testify of any event to be true. So Christ basically outdid that and went ahead and got hundreds of people to validate that he was, in fact, raised. And he, he says some are still alive. He challenges the Corinthians to go ask these other people what they have seen, and he has confidence that they will say the same thing, that Christ has been raised. So if you notice the list of those listed, there are two categories in the list. There are those who are followers of Christ during his ministry, and there are those who became followers because of the resurrection event. They previously were not. So both Paul and James did not follow Christ when he walked the earth. In this way, the resurrection was definitely essential for their conversion, as it is for ours. And by having these two groups, we see that this is not a lie made up by his own believers, but basically it is an actual verifiable truth because some became believers through the event. So just as the burial of Christ confirmed his death, his appearances after the resurrection confirmed his life. And so God has graciously given us this message and this witness to confirm this. So as long as we are in the world, although God has given us many witnesses, he testifies himself and he sends men with his message, as long as we are here, we will constantly be bombarded with views that are contrary to this witness. Many will reject God and his messengers altogether. In fact, as the church began to grow, the gospel began to spread, and we see that men began to pervert this message. Even in the New Testament, we see John and Paul and the other apostles warning against false teachers for much of the writings. The early, the early church confronted this its fair share of false teachings as we do today. Docetism taught that Christ's humanity was not real. He appeared to be human, but he was not. It rejected the humanity of Christ. On the opposite end of the spectrum, Ebionism rejected the deity of Christ by claiming that he was not preexistent, but only a prophet. Adoptionism taught that Jesus was a morally good human that God adopted and made him Lord. Arianism claimed that Christ was a created being and there was a time that he did not exist. In response to all these heresies, the first ecumenical council was held at Nicaea and the church displayed the trust and the apostolic witness of Jesus Christ. 
In regards to Christ, they pen these words. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the same essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and on the third day he rose again, ascended into the heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. These men penned true words of Jesus Christ. They trusted the testimony of Scripture and the witnesses of Christ's resurrection. They did not give in to the pressure of the day. They told the message as they, as they received it and did not pervert. As in the early church, we still encounter a variety of views today. Skepticism and scholarship have affected many's views of God. This is especially evident on college campuses. Depending on what course you're in, you may hear about the genesis of the earth through the Big Bang, or the origin of man through evolution, or the search for the historical Jesus, or things of this nature. We must know where we stand in the world of multiple views. We must trust in the content of the gospel message as the true testimony of Christ. First of all, we have to affirm what Scripture says about Christ. If we are to know who Christ is, we must look to Scripture. We don't have the liberty to add or take away from what Scripture says about who Christ is. The salvation of souls is, in fact, in the balance. In the presence of unbiblical views, we must remain rooted in the gospel. If we are to trust the gospel, we must know the content of the message. It is therefore important for us to read our Bibles, to study Scripture, and to sit under the preaching of the Word. None of us are exempt from this task. The text even shows that Paul delivered the message as he received it. He too was taught. So we see from the text that there are many witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. These witnesses should lead us to assurance and hope in the resurrection and the truthfulness of the gospel. It's because of these faithful witnesses that many believe. Notice that these witnesses were not silent about what they had seen and experienced. We too are witnesses to the resurrection of Christ through the gospel. We must rise up and be counted among those who testify of Christ's resurrection. We must proclaim the true gospel to those who reject the truth or to those who partially accept biblical truth. This does not have to be done in a preaching environment, but even in conversation. We all have friends and family and coworkers and other people that we know who don't hold to the gospel or who hold to a partial gospel. We need to tell them the true message of the gospel. And this only does not apply to those who have alternate views, but we need to hear the gospel ourselves as well. The gospel is a lifetime pursuit, as I mentioned earlier. So we must reinforce our beliefs. We must be ready to boldly proclaim the gospel at all times. And we, when we are struggling with disbelief, we must look to these things that God has given us, these witnesses that he testified of his resurrection. So after pointing to the church and the witnesses as those that testify of the resurrection, Paul points to the power that changed his life. In verses 8 through 11, we see that the present power of Jesus testify of the resurrection. The present power of Jesus. So after Paul lists himself as a witness of the resurrected Christ, along with the others, he shares his personal testimony to show how the resurrection impacted his own life. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, I'm worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
Paul is himself as the last one to see the resurrected Christ and says that he was untimely born. He had an unnatural birth. He was one conceived at a much later time than the other apostles. Paul views himself as one with defects or inferior to those who are naturally born of Christ. He identifies as the least of the apostles and so views himself as last in both rank and time. In regard to the rank, Paul views himself as lower than the others because his previous relationship with the church. Paul confesses to persecuting the church of God. Elsewhere, Paul tells us that he was a zealous Pharisee, persecuting the church and carrying off others off to prison. But in Acts 8 and 9, Luke tells us much about Paul. Paul was, in fact, a witness to the stoning death of Stephen, the first martyr of the faith. Not only was he a witness, but the text says that he approved of Stephen's stoning. He says that Paul was ravaging the church, taking both men and women to prison. Paul was the enemy of the apostles and Christians. He sought to utterly destroy them. The text then contrasts Paul's prior self with his current self with the phrase, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. As a result of this grace, Paul was now something different than he formerly was not by any effort or any desire of his own, but solely based on the grace of God. Paul was on his way to Damascus to bring back to Jerusalem prisoners, Christianist prisoners, but on his way he had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Because of this encounter, his life was no longer the same. He still went to Damascus, but instead of leaving with prisoners, he left with the Holy Spirit. Instead of returning to Jerusalem with prisoners, he returned with the mission and the message of the resurrected Christ. By grace, Paul went from a persecutor to a preacher, to one who tears down, to one who builds up, and one that was an enemy of God to a friend of God. Paul says that his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. God's grace was effective in the life of Paul. It worked through him in his apostolic mission. He claims to have worked harder than the others. If we look at the breadth of Paul's ministry, the time frame, and even our New Testament scriptures, it is clear that Paul was working, or rather God was working mightily through him. The power that transformed Paul was the power of the resurrected Christ. Without the resurrection, Paul would not have encountered Jesus and been transformed by his power. The power that changes all sinners is the power of Jesus. There is no way for the power of a dead man to be active. It is with the resurrection that the power of Jesus works. This is what Peter says in Acts 3, when the council asked him by what power or by what name did he cause the lame man to walk? He responded, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. The man was made to walk by Jesus, just as Paul's life was changed by Jesus. Jesus' power is active amongst his people because of the resurrection. This is why Jesus told his disciples that it's better for him to go away, because once he goes away, the Holy Spirit would come. The Holy Spirit carries on the mission of Christ amongst his people. Now, Paul calls his own life as a witness of the resurrection of Christ. He then witnesses not only at the message, but the present power of Jesus. It is through the power that there is forgiveness, restoration, and transformation. A new man is created in the power of Jesus. So the transformative power that we see is active with Paul, does not stop there on the individual level. It's also a reality of the transformation that unites men together. Paul's concluding remarks reveal the unity that results from the gospel. 
Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. The I here refers to Paul, and they refers to all the witnesses he previously mentioned, Peter, James, and the apostles and the 500. Paul says that regardless of which one of them preached to you, the content would be the same. Because they have all been transformed by the message, they were all united in their belief and in their testimony of Christ. Through the gospel, I and they become we. Those who were once distant are brought near. Those who were once enemies are made friends. Paul preached the message of Christ as did the rest of the apostles. They are therefore united. This unity comes from the content of the message and the person of Christ, which they all experienced through the resurrection. Without the resurrection of Christ and the gospel message, they would not have had the unity. They would not preach the same message. The fact that they have shared message points to the active power of God and his presence among his people. Likewise, we see the believers are unified with those who preach. They preach and the Corinthians believe. They are all therefore in agreement with the message. They are joined together based on their acceptance and dependence of the gospel. The gospel transforms us from self-centered individuals and makes us part of a community. The transformation of the gospel is not limited to the individual and was never meant to be. Christians of today must understand this truth because as a culture, we have moved far away from it. How often do we hear about personal relationships with Jesus Christ or people that claim to be Christians that don't take part in any kind of community? Throughout the course of all scripture, God has been calling a people to himself. He purchased a people with his blood. He gave spiritual gifts for the building up of the body. There are a number of one another commands in the New Testament. It is clear that we are supposed to exist in community. Scripture teaches that one of the effects of Christ's work was the creation of one new man. The dividing walls have been broken down. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that the church is one people united in Christ. We are all God's children and therefore equal. He alludes to the fact that out in the world, people may get, it treat, may get treated differently based on their social status, based on their employment, based on their gender, based on their culture, or based on their race. But he's saying in the church, that's not a thing. He said in the church, we don't do that. He says in the church, we are all equal. He says you were dead in your sins just like I was. You were saved by the grace of God just like I was. You were added to the body of Christ just like I was. And our standing before God is the same, righteous on account of Christ. He says we are one people and we are there all equal in Christ. So we have been called to unity for there is one body and one spirit, just as we were called to the one hope that belongs to our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are unified in Christ and there are no divisions. Only Jesus has the power to take vastly different people and put them on one accord. Scripture is clear that authentic transformation comes only from the gospel. Through the power of Christ, through the power of Christ, Although we know this, many times we seek transformation in other things or by our own might. We know that only Christ can change us, but we still seek to change ourselves foolishly. In a popular time of year where we try to change ourselves, it's actually around right now. It's January 2016, so that means New Year's resolutions, of course. And I'm sure some of you have made some. Some of you may have broke them already. I don't know. I'm not quite sure. But as I was scrolling through Facebook on New Year's, I noticed a post that caught my eye and was pretty funny to me. So I'll share that with you. But, so I had a friend who put a post up, and it basically says, 
uh, says, I failed miserably. Let's see how I do this year. And he used the new Facebook memory feature, and he shared a post from 2011 that said, this year's New Year's resolution will be the same as the last few years. I'm going to stop using profanity. So basically, in 2011, he had already failed a couple of times, and here we are in 2016, and he's going with that one again. So just like us, we do the same thing. We try to change ourselves, yet we fail miserably over and over and over again, because in fact, we know that we can't change ourselves. We rightly seek transformation, because we rightly understand that we need transformation, but we sometimes don't rightly understand that the source of transformation lies outside of ourselves. The source of transformation is in the gospel message, and the power that is in the resurrection of Christ. In all our efforts and all our trying, he was no better than he started out, and neither are we. Like him, we know that within ourselves we need transformation, but there is nothing in our power we can do. We can try by pure willpower, or maybe even try some mental exercises of sorts, but really true change won't come from these things. The prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick, who can understand it? If we are to have our hearts transformed, we must trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the text shows us that the present power of Jesus testifies of the resurrection. When we display the power, we test, when, we, when we display this power, we testify of the resurrected Christ and the truthfulness of the gospel message. In order for Paul to testify this, he had to let the Corinthians know where he came from. He, he, let, them, he let them in on a, on a dirty secret he had. He persecuted the church. Now, Paul's persecution was mainly happening in Jerusalem. Paul was not writing to Corinthians in Greece, a, di a very different country. So it's possible some of them did not know his dirty past. It's possible some of them did not know he was a persecutor previously. They may have thought he was just this great, mighty man of God, and he could have carried that aura with them. But Paul exposes himself to display the power of God. And so some of us need to do likewise. It's okay to let people know some of the things we've been through, some of the places we come from, because in doing so, we testify of the power of Christ's resurrection. By sharing our past struggles, our past lifestyle, we display the present power of Jesus at work. We testify to the reality that Jesus is alive. Not only this, but we build each other up and encourage each other, but it's likely that someone is going through the same thing that you were going through. And along the same lines, we need to trust in the active power of God for our transformation. We know we can't change ourselves, but even with this reality, Paul says he works harder than any of them, but that it was God's grace that worked through him. So we see there's a synergy between Paul and God. Paul's not just sitting there waiting for something to happen or God just to do something. Paul is working while God's working, and Paul's working because God is working. So we need to seek God for true transformation and work with the Spirit, seeking God in prayer and in the Scriptures and spiritual disciplines so he can transform us and gradually conform us to the image of Christ. So this doesn't only apply to us, but also to the power of Jesus and salvation as well. Many of us know non-believers. In fact, all of us do. We must trust that through Jesus' power, he will draw man to himself. We cannot count anyone out or give up hope. The Spirit works as it wishes, and if one like Paul can become a believer, or one like me can become a believer, anyone can become a believer, because in fact, we were all dead in sin, in the same exact state. Lastly, we must examine ourselves honestly. Through the gospel, we are all united, and there are no divisions. We cannot have an I and they, or an us and them mentality when it comes to other believers. We are united, we are one. Because of this reality, we must love one another, 
regard one another as more important than ourselves, not cause our brothers to stumble, and bear each other's burdens. We should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We must seek to understand each other and live in unity. When we do so, we glorify God by showing his transformative power. We testify of the resurrection of Christ. It is because the gospel message that we are gathered here on this Sunday morning, God testified of the death and burial and resurrection through many faithful witnesses. This message was preached and passed down throughout the centuries. It has now come to us. Those of us who believe are being saved by it. We are now brothers added to the number of the church. We have been transformed by the message. We are a new creation through the gospel. Different from our past selves, the gospel drastically changes our present and gives us hope for the future. So maybe you aren't a believer and this doesn't, what I just said isn't you. Maybe this is your first time hearing the message. This text is a call for repentance for both believers and non-believers alike. We've all sinned against the holy God. We are all guilty in God's eyes. Christ died for our sin. He was buried and he was raised by the Father. We can now have forgiveness of sins and restored fellowship with the Father through faith in Christ. So you've heard the true testimony of Christ. You've seen the transformative power that it has. And you've seen that it's validated by both God and men. Salvation is possible if you hold fast to the gospel message. So to truly trust the gospel means we must leave behind any distorted views or anything contrary to the message. We must admit that we cannot save ourselves and that we are in need of a savior. We must turn to Christ for salvation, for knowledge of God, and for transformation. It's only through the gospel message that we can truly know who God is, that we can truly be saved, and we can truly be transformed. There's no substitute or alternatives. The power of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We must trust in the resurrection because it is the trustworthy foundation of the gospel. Let's pray together. Uh, Father God, I thank you for this time that you have given us to, to look more deeply into your word. I pray that you help us to see that the resurrection is the power of the gospel, that there is no salvation, that there is no church, that there is nothing without the resurrection. The fact that you testify of the resurrection in both the Old and New Testament, and that you have given this witness to, to others to share and proclaim, help us to see the truth of the resurrection and how it has implications for our lives, how it causes us to sanctification, how it causes us to holiness, and how, most of all, it gives us hope for the future that we too will be like you and will be raised in glory. God, we thank you for all you've done. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.